Um, The reading's taken from Isaiah 50, starting at verse 4 and reading until verse 10. The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who, then, will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. The passage we're thinking about tonight, the Isaiah one, Isaiah 54 to 10, is titled, The Obedient Servant. Verses 4 to 9 contain a third of what are called the servant songs in Isaiah. And these songs are poems or songs that are told, well, that told the Israelites the details of the coming Messiah. They're told by a prophet who's seeking to make sense of the painful realities of life in exile. And the first of the servant songs is found in Isaiah 42, 1 to 9. In that passage, God the Father identifies the future Messiah as my servant, who would have a quiet and patient demeanour, would bring comfort for the weak and the oppressed, would bring truth and justice, and would be a light to the Gentiles. And it makes the point that he would open mankind's eyes and that his arrival is a sure thing. The second servant song is Isaiah 49, 1 to 13. which tells us that the Messiah will come in human form. He'll be an effective teacher. He'll glorify the Father. He was sent to save Israel. He'll be rejected and he'll save all mankind. It goes on to tell us that those who despised him will one day worship him and that he represents a promise to all people. And now we're thinking about the third of those four songs, which talk about the obedience of the Messiah to follow the Father's will, no matter what the cost. It also reminds us both of the suffering and the cost of being faithful to the God's calling from the perspective of those in exile and the cost of discipleship for us now. After all, we all know that there are times in the Christian life when following God's will for our lives is difficult, when Doing what we believe God wants us to do comes at a price. And because it's written about the coming Messiah, it tells us of the price Jesus paid for us, of the suffering he went through in his obedience in following God's will. So let's quickly look at each of those things in turn. First of all, then, we have the servant's calling. Verses 4 and 5 emphasise the servant's calling through the theme of faithfulness. God speaking of his intention to his people is at the core of the prophet's calling. Um, Both verses 4 and 5 begin with the Lord God as the one who enables his servant to fulfil his calling, his vocation. 
We're told that the Lord God has given the prophet a tongue in order to speak words that sustain people. We read that the Lord has opened the ear of the servant. It's God, therefore, that enables the servant to fulfill his calling, making both the servant's speech and the servant's hearing possible. Because of this, the Messiah will be obedient in listening and in bringing God's message to the people. And this message wasn't perhaps a message that people back then were expecting. They'll have expected someone to preserve the status quo, someone to enlarge the nation politically and with military force. But instead, as we know, he brought a message of justice and personal righteousness. And we read in Isaiah 50, verse 5, I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. And that tells us that the Messiah would keep to his message. He wouldn't turn away from the message he was called to deliver. He wasn't bothered about the consequences. Listening to the Father and not turning away is a contrast to the people of Israel to whom Isaiah was delivering this prophecy. They'd been given a patient teaching from God through his prophets, but they'd not listened, and that's how they'd ended up where they were in the first place. Now, that's all well and good. It seems like it's about the Babylonians in exile and about the promised Messiah, who we know was Jesus. But that message from Isaiah will have undoubtedly given the people of Babylon hope. It will have definitely inspired them to keep on going. But what about us now? What difference does that make to us? What does it matter to our lives? Well, in the text, the servant sustains the weary with a word. And who does that today? Well, Jesus does, of course, but as Christians, we're called to do that also. Who listens to be able to faithfully speak? Well, the prophet does, but so should we. Who's called to turn the other cheek in the face of personal injustice? Well, Jesus, of course, and also the prophet, but so too are we. And how do we do this? How do we manage to face the trials and tribulations we face at different times in our lives? Well, we do it because we rely on God's help to help us through it. We rely on God in it all. We rely on God to help us just as generations and generations before us have relied on God. History shows us that God calls his people, God equips his people, and God uses people through different situations. So we're to rely on God in those things that he has called us to do. And part of that reliance on God requires simple obedience. Obedience isn't something we're always that good at. In the 11th century, King Henry III of Bavaria grew tired of court life and the pressures of being a monarch. He made application to the prior Richard at the local monastery, asking to be accepted as a contemplative and spend the rest of his life in the monastery. Your Majesty, said Prior Richard, do you understand that the pledge here is one of obedience? That will be hard because you, of course, have been a king. I understand, said Henry. The rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. Then I will tell you what to do, said Prior Richard. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. When King Henry died, a statement was written, The king learned to rule by being obedient. 
When we tire of our roles and responsibilities, it helps us to remember that God has put us in a certain place at a certain time. He's put us and told us to be good at whatever it is that we're doing, whether that's to be a good teacher, a good father, a good mother, a good student, a good shop assistant, or whatever he's given us to do. God expects us to be faithful in what we're doing. And to do that, we need to be entirely reliant on him, knowing that when God asks us to do something, he also equips us to do it. If you remember the first part of that passage from Isaiah, we're told about the servant's calling, and we're told about what God had given his servant in order to fulfill that calling. Verses 4 and 5, if you remember, say, the Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue, he's opened my ears. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but you get my point. When God calls us, he equips us. And when God asks us to do something, whatever that thing is, he gives us the resources to do it, however hard it may seem at the time. And it's our job to be obedient to that calling. Do you remember those bracelets that were fashionable about a decade ago? And uh, if you've still got one, then, of course, they're still fashionable. But um, the... uh, (laughs) WWJD ones. Who's man enough to admit that they had one? (laughs) And still might. Okay, cool. They're still good. Well, that stood for what would Jesus do? And I also remember ones that said frog, which meant fully reliant on God. To be fully reliant on God is what God is asking of us. To be fully reliant on God is easier said than done. There was a story of a man called Oscar who was apprehensive about his first flight. His friends, eager to hear how it went, asked how he enjoyed his trip on an aeroplane. And he said, well, it wasn't as bad as I thought it might be, but I'll tell you this, I never did put all my weight down. You see, to fully rely on anything can be difficult. But we know from both what history teaches us and from our own experiences that we can trust God completely. Yet so often we're scared of following his calling as we don't really know what it will cost us. So often we're worried about what lies ahead, though we know we serve a God who loves us and cares for us and is always with us. There's another story, I do apologise for all the stories, but there's a story of a man and a son who write one day in the country. He was climbing around on some cliffs and the dad heard a voice from above him yell, Hey, Dad, catch me. He turned around to see his son joyfully jumping off a cliff face towards him. He jumped and then yelled, Hey, Dad. And it was lucky that he managed to catch him. The father lost his breath for a moment with the shock. And when he found his voice again, he gasped in exasperation. Can you give me one good reason why you did that? He responded with my remarkable calmness. And he said, sure, because you're my dad. His whole assurance was based on the fact that his father was trustworthy. He could live life to the full because his father could be trusted. And isn't that even more true for a Christian? We need to fully trust God. We need to fully rely on him, whatever he's called us to do and whatever, wherever he has placed us. We need to rely on God through the good things, the times when it's clear that God is guiding us and leading us, and when things are going well. And we need to remember that it is God who is doing the good things through us, 
and not us doing them. But we also need to continue to rely on God when things go a bit wrong. So we're, first of all, to rely on God through the things that he has called us to do. And then we get to the suffering as a result of God's calling. In verse 6, we read about that suffering. You see, Jesus was not sent to teach through his preaching and teaching, but also through suffering and dying for our sins, which he was obedient to. Remember, this was prophesied about 750 years before the suffering actually happened to Jesus. And Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. We know from the Gospels the truth about those predictions. We know he was flogged, mocked, spat upon. The phrase in Isaiah 50 verse 6, plucked out the beard, is an expression that means to shame someone, to shame a man to take away any sign of his manhood. And it's verse 6 that is the hinge of the passage. It describes the servant's suffering at the hands of his enemies, suffering that's directly related to his calling and the message described at the start of it. And it's important to point out that the servant, the Messiah, does not receive this suffering passively, but he actively chooses to accept it and accept the conflict that arises through doing what God called him to do. He doesn't shy away from the consequences of what he has to say. The suffering is in fact a byproduct of him speaking the truth. And Jesus, before he was crucified, didn't hide his face from the shame and splitting. As we know, he was beaten, mocked and whipped. He was in the worst of situations, far more difficult than what Isaiah's original readers would ever face. But the servant was obedient and submissive. Jesus didn't save face. Instead, he gave everything he was to save and sustain us. And we too are to rely on God through any suffering that we might face as a result of our calling. I often think that we're very fortunate in this country that we'll never really know what suffering for our faith is, not compared to those countries where people die for their faith who can't worship apart from in secret. And that's not to be dismissive of any difficulties that we do go through, not at all, but it sometimes helps to put things in perspective. But when we do go through difficult times, especially when it's because of the way we do things because we're Christians, then we need to remember that we're not alone and God has promised to always be with us. I really like this quote I heard when somebody asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? He simply said, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. You see, when we face hard times knowing that God is with us, we can have a confidence that only he can bring, a confidence knowing that he will bring us through the other side. Verses 6 and 7 from the reading earlier says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking or spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. I offered my back. That's an active response to suffering. That means to go straight into the face of the difficulties. That's to go straight into the face of opposition, which is miles easier said than done. But you never know how God can use the trials that we face to do something in us or through us. 
Having a deep relationship with God leads to confidence in the face of difficult circumstances. It's easy to trust God when things are going our way, or easier at least. But the proof of real discipleship is to be faithful when things are going against us, even though we're following God. Isaiah also said, Who then bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is a brave man who asks his accusers to face him. And I'm not sure I like that logic. But it's that confidence that the servant has in God to help him through the suffering and hardship that he's facing. Tim Hansel, in his book, You've Got to Keep Dancing, says, Most of the Psalms were born in difficulty. Most of the epistles were written in prisons. Most of the greatest thoughts of the greatest thinkers of all time had to pass through the fire. Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress from Jail. Florence Nightingale, too ill to move from her bed, reorganised the hospitals of England. Semi-paralysed and under the constant menace of apoplexy, Pasteur was tireless in his attack on disease. During the greater part of his life, American historian Francis Parkman suffered so acutely that he could not work for more than five minutes at a time. His eyesight was so wretched that he could only scroll a a few gigantic words on a manuscript, yet he contrived to write 20 magnificent volumes of history. Sometimes it seems that when God is about to make a preeminent use of a man, he puts him through the fire. Now, I don't believe that God makes us suffer at all, but just that God can use the experience to teach us something and to draw us closer to him. And that's not to say that we should look for suffering or be martyrs or put up with some stuff that really we can just change, but that you never know how God's going to use the suffering that we go through to shape us, to change us, or to make a difference to those around us. When we rely on God through suffering, we need to rely on him to give us the strength we need to get through it. And finally, there's God's vindication at the end of it all. Verses 7 to 9 and verse 10, I guess, speak of the way that God vindicates his servant. Verse 7 tells us how a servant could endure such wicked treatment. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Flint is a hard, dense rock and is very hard to break. The imagery is intended to show that the Messiah would not be swayed from his purpose. And of course we know that this was true of Jesus. He wasn't swayed from his purpose by anything that anyone could throw at him. He wasn't swayed by the fiercest fiercest opposition or betrayal. We know that although people sought to mock and shame Jesus, he never wavered because he was obedient to his purpose. And it's in these verses that the Lord God vindicates his servant. It's God who was at the source of the servant's calling at the start of the passage, and he also vindicates him. Because of God's help, the servant will not be put to shame, and his enemies will not be able to contend against him or declare him guilty. The servant submitted to major hardships because he believed that God would stand by him in his innocence. The servant was convinced that he would be vindicated by God who helps him, even if it didn't seem that he was winning a visible battle. He was convinced he was doing God's will. And why did he, he not battle back or turn back? 
because God helped him. He believed that God in the end would not let him be disgraced, therefore he didn't run away, but found the strength and encouragement that he needed to go on, even through the most difficult of circumstances. And why could Jesus endure the shame, the spitting, the beating, the brutality, the pain, the agony? It was because he believed God's promise to him through it all. He was aware that those who falsely accused him would eventually face him as their judge and that they'll come to nothing because he depended on God's help. Those who stood against him would come to nothing and they would eventually fall. And for the Babylonians, God's help was a source of their confidence and a hope in the midst of suffering. And for us, well, we need to have that same sort of confidence and hope in the midst of our difficulties. Confidence that God will sustain us. God, confidence that he will prove us right in front of our accusers. We're to rely on God to vindicate us. And you know, that's kind of cool because he says, he who vindicates me is near. That's God doing the vindicating. That's not us having to prove things for ourselves. And the thing is, sometimes things don't work out. But as long as we've done what we know to be right before God, then we don't need to worry. When we fully rely on God, we know we can face anything because he is with us. And I want to finish with just one final story of a boy who was scared of the dark. The boy was stood at the top of the stairs and he sobbed to his father, but dad, I want my ball, but in a sobbing voice, which I can't do. You can play with your ball, he said, but you'll have to go downstairs and get it yourself. And well, the boy started crying. The boy's playroom held all the stuffed animals, the toys and the games that all four-year-olds love. He spent hours in there. But to turn on the basement light, he had to walk down a dark corridor, down a darkened stairway, and step into the shadowy playroom to reach the light switch. Son, his dad said, you know what's in the playroom. Everything in there is the same in the dark as it is in the light. But Daddy sniffed, I'm scared of the dark. Okay, his dad said, I'll stay at the top of the stairs so you can hear my voice while you go down. How does that sound? Well, a, g- a grin replaced his tears. He got up and started down the stairs and then partway down into the darkness, he hesitated. Dad, he called out. Yes, said the father. Nothing. Seconds later, the light was on and he was happily playing with the toy that he'd set out to find simply knowing that his father was nearby to give him the courage and face and overcome his fear of darkness was enough. So complete this sentence. Sensing God's presence in my life and knowing that he is always with me and will never leave me gives me the courage to face what? What does the certainty of God's presence in your life give you the confidence and the courage to face? We're going to close our service by singing Give Thanks to the Lord, which is number 1241. And we'll stand to sing.
Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that we can totally rely on you through everything. That whatever we face, we know that you are with us. And we just ask that you will help us to always remember that and to have a new confidence in you that that brings. Amen.